Welcome to Talk Tennis, a podcast created specifically for you, the tennis fanatic. Join us each week as we work to elevate your game both on and off the court. We will deliver fresh episodes to keep you up to date with tennis trends and technologies, as well as exclusive interviews with industry experts, current and former pros, and so much more. Here's your host, Michelle. Welcome to Talk Tennis. Today's guest is a sports performance coach, personal trainer, strength coach for athletes of all ages and levels, having played tennis as a junior and many years of studying and working with athletes of all levels. We think he might have a tip or two for us. So welcome to Talk Tennis, James Shapiro. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Michelle, for having me on this episode. And I'm excited, uh, one, not just to be on the show, but to talk everything, anything strength related, strength conditioning, fitness related, especially with the tennis community, because it's just uh, a group that I'm really passionate about. Yes, I love this too. Um, I'm kind of like this weird person that like I grew up training for tennis my whole life, played D1 college, like did all that and then like finished my college career and still wanted to be in tennis coaching and all that, but kind of like took a step away from my personal health journey. And then I turned 30 and moved here and started working at Tennis Warehouse. And now like, it's definitely a huge pillar of my life. Like if I don't get my workout in, there there is no actual, like there is no, if I don't get my workout in. It's such an important part of my day that, so I appreciate you being here. No, it's, it's, it's definitely, I think, uh, a part of my own daily routine as well for all the hours that I put in, um, whether it's on the court, in the gym, out in the park, that I still also have to take care yes. of my own health because I think it's like paramount to not just showing that, hey, you are caring about your own health, but if you don't help yourself, you can't help others. That's kind of like one of my mantras. Totally. Um, and that whole like put on your life jacket before you put on anyone else's, <laughs> um, which I know many of us are guilty of like worrying about controlling everything else. But yes, being able to provide people with your best version, which endorphins and all that. But before we get into the weeds, give me a little bit of background on you. How did you end up here? Why tennis? Tell me about your, tell me about your path. Sure. So my tennis background connection actually dates so far back. I, you know, I played juniors and I know there's always this conversation of, Hey, when did you start to play? And I was kind of considered a a late bloomer dad end, you know, 12, 13, I played for a few years, uh, definitely not to the level that some of the kids and some of the college D1 level players I work with now, they would just wipe the floor. With <laughs> but uh, that kind of love for the game then translated me to then becoming a USPTA, uh, first recreational coach. Then I upgraded that to a professional level coach. And I you know, worked in the Northeast uh, for a while, about three to four years and had opportunities to work in summer camps independently, be a director in one position. And I just saw that there was a bigger gap in terms of the physical development. And, you know, my love was not just for the game, but also the training process for it. You know, there's a lot of things that people fall in love with the journey, not so much the end result. And that's something that I just, I loved and I cared for. I loved helping other people get to that point. So over the next nine years, uh, working in the New York City market as a personal trainer, sports performance coach, strength coach, and amassing two master's degrees because I thought, you know, you know, knowledge is wealth. And the more I can do to provide for not only my clients and athletes 
from a interpersonal level, but also from the hard sciences, the advanced techniques and everything else in between, the better. So investing in myself to invest in others seemed reasonable. And once 2020 hit, we all know what happened there. <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that gave me a little bit of a roadblock. And I understood, hey, in New York City, it is a big tennis town. Listen, the U.S. Open there in Flushing Meadows. I grew up nearby and really close to the West Side Tennis Club, which infamously is the spot before the U.S. Open moved over to Flushing Meadows. And so there is a community, but I realized I need to go ahead and branch off more. And so that took me from a kind of whirlwind journey, then up to Massachusetts and then across the U.S., making a journey from coast to coast. And when I got out here into the LA, the SoCal kind of area, I started to see this gap. And I didn't really realize that. Now, granted, one, I hadn't picked up a racket in about eight years. So, you know, the time to actually play was very limited. But I realized, you know, everyone's talking about these big ticket sports that, of course, are team sports. But I saw that tennis wasn't getting its own recognition, uh, working in bigger strength and conditioning facilities. So, and being a former you know, junior player and coach, I know how important that aspect and element is to the game. So I took it upon my mission to start being that influencer to bring up tennis, the fitness behind it, strength conditioning behind it, the strength training behind it, up to a higher level. And over the past two years, I've been fortunate enough to work with top juniors in the area, both boys and girls. D3, D2, D1 level recreational players and a few ITF and WTA players. So it's it's been a journey, but you know I never would have thought that I would fall back in love and have really the majority of people I work with be tennis players, be tennis athletes. This is again nine years after the last time I picked up a racket. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. And I'm trying to normalize the uh, feeling of like being a junior player and not necessarily having the goal to be the best in the world. Like it's totally fine. It's okay. Tennis can lead you to some really cool places. Like we just heard your story. So, and you're working with amazing people and you're, you're influencing and you have an impact on the sport. So that's amazing. And I love that story and welcome to California. Um, I'm a little biased, but <laughs> it's a great place. Good vibes. <laughs> no, it's definitely treated me well. And uh, the only thing I will say is that I kind of do miss seasons a little bit being from the Northeast. Uh, I'll have my Shawshank redemption for those listeners and uh, people watching that like understand the reference. I will have my own Andy Dufresne moment staying in the rain if I ever go up back to the Northeast and it rains. Like, what is this? And no, <laughs> all, all jokes aside, um, it's, I've had a great time being out here for the, nearly uh, the past two years. I mean, it's freezing. It just dropped to like 60 degrees this week. <laughs> um, no, we're very soft. <laughs> um, so let's get into kind of what separates tennis from some other sports and even what does like a tennis specific strength training program might look like compared to someone that, you know, maybe they just grew up going to the gym or, you know, they're getting on that elliptical every day and they do a couple of weights. What are we... What makes tennis different and how are you training for a tennis player? Sure. So, you know, when we break down the roles and responsibilities, the capacities that need to be developed, 
And on top of that, the movement qualities and everything else in between. There's so many of these bio uh, mechanisms and kind of uh, metrics to really develop as a tennis player. They kind of differ from your uh, normal team sport athlete to a certain degree, right? Racket sports require a lot. So it's unique because you can't necessarily, quote unquote, in our strength conditioning field, crush uh, an athlete. And what I mean by that is focus on heavyweights mm-hmm. moving fast. Like and that doesn't translate at all for an athlete. That doesn't mean that that isn't important at all. But when working with any level of athlete, especially playing tennis, you have to understand that movement efficiency, motor control, developing change of direction, some parts parts of agility as well, and power are some of the biggest components for the tennis athlete. So how that also differs or what you can look like, what that strength training session can look like is primarily, I would say about, if I had to give a good ratio on average, mm-hmm. it's about 60% movement okay, and about 40% on the other areas. We're talking about mobility. We're talking about strength. We're talking about bits and pieces of power, but also the injury prevention mm-hmm. section as well, right? And I know we're, we're talking not just to, you know, the pros listening and not just the aspiring juniors and, uh, you know, division one, two, three, uh, collegiate players as well, but we're also talking about to the recreational players. That's what makes up the majority of the tennis community. And so, you know, understanding that you don't have to train like the track and field uh, USA team that you don't have to train necessarily like a NFL linebacker uh, that you don't have to try to think about your movement being as efficient and quick and agile as a soccer player. It's a mixture of so many elements that it is not necessarily considered, especially in our industry and strength conditioning as a traditional or by the book um, type of plug and play program or training. And I think maybe I personally have seen this trend change over my lifetime. And I don't know, you're still young, but maybe you can talk a little bit about it. All of a sudden, tennis players are actually spending a lot of time on mobility. And they're doing more functional training. And, you know, whereas I feel like 20 years ago, it was like, you're in the gym, you're working with the same trainer that trained the football team, the same trainer that trains the swimmers. And it's like, all of a sudden, you're running. And if you don't get a certain mile, time you're you have to do it again or you're off the team for a week it's like uh, thankfully like I feel like we got past that but hopefully knock on wood talk to me a little bit about how like that shifted and thank goodness (laughs) yeah no thank goodness I mean it's you know we've gone from this aspect I think what you're talking about was that tennis was seen as the oh yeah that they need to be doing what we're doing. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Like sports specificity demands, analyzing the energy systems. Like, no, no, no. They need to run the mile. They need to run the 10 mile. Right. They need to be doing all these push-ups and chin-ups. It kind of sounds familiar with also a lot of other areas. Like the army has retooled, revamped their physical testing as well. So when it comes down to it, I think, Tennis, we look at the speed of the matches, the 
The strings have changed. The technology has changed on the rackets. The players are, you know, I'm not trying, you know, put a put anyone's names out there, but compare to the field of men and women that we have today mm-hmm. to 30 years ago into the 90s. It's absurd the level of athleticism mm-hmm. that is required, but also some of these shots. I mean, you need to be getting down so low. I'm shocked. No, my back hurts. Maybe <laughs> watching a little you, my hips are like, ooh, oh, I yeah. felt this one. <laughs> Same. <laughs> but but these players are practicing getting into these deep positions, having the mobility at the ankle, at the hip, and the rotation needed for some of these crazy shots. These are things that we we didn't see about thirty years ago. Right. So I think the the shift and change has been dramatically going to that direction that you need to be mobile, you need to have the footwork. You need to be also strong in those positions. And the functional styles of training there, like I mentioned earlier, are not necessarily aligned with what we see from a normal, old-fashioned, mm-hmm. strength conditioning type of format. Yeah, for sure. And then speaking on that, I'd love you to hit on some differences. Like you're working with a top player that's trying to go pro or go D1, get that full scholarship. Versus you're working with someone that plays tennis recreationally, but it's still a very important part of their life. Um, what does that look like? Is How different is that? How much is the time difference? And maybe explain how that works. Absolutely. So I think, one, no matter what rating you are uh, in comparison, let's say, to a junior player, uh, someone who's who's got some time on their side, they're still youthful, they're still springy, uh, my ankles are cracking like they're a, a salt shaker, but they are going to be what we consider and term as more tenderness. This means that simply they're producing a lot of energy through their tendons as their muscles are still developing. And still getting to a point where they are uh, getting stronger and stronger at the recreational level. And we're looking at this from also from the teen to the adult to the aging adult kind of field and range. Our bodies, especially with our tendons, they stop developing. You know, the qualities that they have as we've trained from our youth to our adolescence and teen years and early adult life, that kind of gets to a point and it stops developing. Now, of course, our muscles still grow and develop, and you can see the musculature difference between someone in their teens and someone in their, let's say, their 30s. It's a night and day kind of difference, but the energy requirements are, you know, different from tenderness to muscular. So how we're training them, uh, especially to get to that level, let's say they have college aspirations, is going to be, I'd say, more tenderness. You know, the game I mentioned earlier is a lot more powerful. There's a bigger emphasis on acceleration, speed, change of direction. These are points that specifically these players, they are fighting for. Because to them, it's a difference between a recruiter looking at them with just their stats, but also watching them in person compared to, you know, a recreational player, you're playing with your friends on the weekend. You know, you're not living for the next tournament where your ranking depends on your your results then depend on an offer from one school or the other. So, you know, that's a huge difference right there. I would say the biggest training effects that I emphasize when working with those populations is with that junior, that teen, 
it's a lot more on the power spectrum. Okay. There's a huge emphasis there. There's also the need for developing that base of strength. Now, when we switch over to the recreational player, uh, someone who's not trying to go down that road, the emphasis for power is still there. However, we have to, of course, consider a lot more behind that story. Have there been injuries? You know, how are their joints? What kind of lifestyle are they going through outside of just playing tennis? What's their work-life balance looking like as well? And you can't do the heavy or necessarily the very impactful plyometrics, mm-hmm. or the continuous or repeatable plyometrics, because it takes a toll on the body. And this takes time to develop. Now, as a junior, as a young teen, you can kind of take that a little bit more with your tendons and your bones are still growing. Your muscles are still growing. When we get older in life, that becomes a whole lot harder. Yes. <laughs> outside of that, I feel it sometimes too, but outside <laughs> of that, it's almost identical, but it's the biggest thing here is how scalable it is. And also the quality of the training versus the quantity, you know, get older, it's harder to put on a lot of more reps. When you're younger, you can put in that practice, you can put in more reps. Nice. And then from there, I'm going to go in two ways. We're going to go to that junior player. Let's say we've got families out there listening, parents, and their kid is showing a lot of promise on the court, but that piece might be missing. I know a lot of people grow up and they don't strength train until they get to college or, you know, it's it's a little intimidating. So talk to me about starting a junior player, someone that's a bit younger, uh, their body hasn't developed. How would you start them in a strength program? And also making it fun because like I have PTSD and like between the ages of like five and 22, training was never fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, you know, I think, yeah, I, I hear different stories and I think it comes down to who you had as a coach or a trainer. Yeah. That's the biggest influence. But ironically, and that's also the one of the things that brought me when I've moved out here into Southern California a lot more was that I saw the influx of players I was working with, but also their training age. You know, tennis is one of those sports that a lot of parents growing, uh, growing their kids up through the sport want to put a lot of practice hours into just tennis. Mm -hmm. And it takes them and makes them, I should say a single sport athlete. Now growing up, I played baseball, soccer, basketball, and tennis. Then later on, I did uh, Japanese sword fencing. I did kendo. I did boxing. I mean, it it was just something that I thought that was part of the process as a, you know, one-on-one sport, not a team sport type of setting. And what I'm seeing more is that specialization coming earlier. But on top of that, there's no time for the physical side of training. And as those kids go from the 14s to 16s, all of a sudden puberty, right? Some kids are taking advantage of that. Parents are smart and they're putting their kids through working with a personal trainer or strength coach. They understand that the speed of the game is increasing Mm -hmm. and the shots are more powerful. The serves are faster. So how do you catch up to that? You know, I see a lot of those kids coming in late, but that doesn't mean that it's too late because it's better late than never in my book. So when working with a junior or young kid, the first thing I always like to do is one, make it a fun environment, especially in the beginning. 
And that includes, of course, you know, small side games, small competitions, if it's in a small group environment. And at the same time, keep them as athletes. You know, we're not, I'm not trying to make them weight room warriors. <laughs> That's something later in life. If you want to do that, do that. It's perfectly fine. It's actually really healthy, but their priority is a sport. So I got to keep levels of competition in there. So that includes those games, but it also includes something from a practitioner standpoint. You know, we track and we look for later on is something called velocity-based training, VBT. And this is a, a area inside our industry has been emerging over the past five years to decade and is still continuing. So what I mean by VBT is, you know, we're trying to track through wearable technology or a device that's put onto, let's say, a barbell, a kettlebell, a trap bar, hexagon bar that measures speed, meters over seconds. And one of the things that I have seen, and it's been shown through studies too, the amount of input that you get from that athlete, how invested they become to get a faster score on the single repetition they just went through and the buy-in is off the charts. You know, I might say um, to Paul, I might say, hey, I need us to get above a 0.7 and he gets a 0.7 and I say, hey, okay, give me a 0.8 <laughs> and then Let's say he gets a 0.77, but then the next rep goes 0.72. I can see the competitive nature. Mm -hmm. And I know anyone who's played tennis <laughs> ever is always going to want to compete. No one competes to lose. We all compete to win. Yes. That includes that one-on-one -on -one atmosphere of you versus you in the weight room, which is different from being on court. So they want a faster number. They want a higher number. And so doing small things like that, I think creates a huge buy-in, but you know, I've seen, and I've worked with juniors who have gotten to a point they've come in and it looked like they had no physical background and all of a sudden, you know, aches and pains, little things, and let's say improvements on the court weren't quantified in the weight room or working with me outside in the field, but they resulted in better practices. They resulted in better results. And that's, primarily what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for us to chase numbers. I'm looking for us to chase results. I love that. And also you hit on something that reminded me on your website, you talk about there's three, three words. And the one that stands out the most to me is confidence. I'm in my like, trying to get everyone to have more confidence in life. And just even hearing you talk about that, to me, that exudes confidence for that player. And like for someone that maybe, you know, maybe they're having a tough year or maybe they don't feel as strong as everyone else or maybe they're slowest person in their, you know, workout group. It's like those little things can build the confidence that they need that that is going to translate on the court. And you can't like, you can't just teach that. You can't just tell someone, go have confidence. So maybe talk a little bit about confidence and how that relays to the tennis side of things too. Absolutely. I think, you know, whether you're on that competitive side, let's say in division, uh, you know, one, two, three, you're at the high school level, you're at the recreational level. It doesn't matter where it begins. Confidence really goes into all aspects of the game from your body language, how you slow yourself down to get that tunnel vision, you know, that kind of sweet spot speed that you can feel everything's moving slowly. And, you know, also your cognitive ability to control your emotions. So, you know, 
confidence in the weight room, working in strength conditioning, strengthening your body, your fitness, I think carries over a lot because whether it's whether or not, you know, you're really in the zone, you're eyeing your opponent for every single thing that they have. If you start to put some self-doubt or put some seeds like that, that, wow, like their shoulders are big or like, wow, like they're just moving so fast. You're putting those seeds of doubt into yourself. So one of the best ways to not just remove that is to say, hey, I've got the same capacities and the same qualities. And it's again, I mentioned this earlier, it's a you versus you environment when you're training. When you're on the court, it's of course, you know, you versus your opponent. And so creating that level of isolation where the work is not about, you know, what they're doing uh, 15 miles away. It's what you're doing in the moment. And the changes that I see from, let's just say, the weight going up on certain motions, or all of a sudden we're timing a five-yard or 10-yard acceleration, and they're just buzzing. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're buying into it because they just feel it, and they see an arbitrary statistical number saying 10% better. We shaved off 0.15. Now, that. You know, listeners are going to be like, 0.15 was in a second. <laughs> yeah, that's a difference of seconds. And the game is all about milliseconds. Can you be behind the ball instead of to the side, just reaching, getting to that right position? And it, it, it bleeds everywhere. So, you know, I'm a big component of can you improve your mental strength, your cognitive strength, right? And also every other aspect. Realize I didn't just say physical strength in there. And that emotion, that confidence carries on because if you think you're going to win, you're already halfway there. Yeah, for sure. I I think a lot of um, confidence can be found in the gym, working out, doing, yeah, doing those things. I personally love it. Um, Which leads me to my question. (laughs) Let's talk about the aging athlete. Um, I am someone, like I said, like grew up, yeah, and all of that, but then hit 30 and like, I'm getting closer and closer to a big birthday. And like, I swear I went for a run on Sunday and I'm like, my knees are kind of sore. Like, <laughs> or like you were talking about the explosive stuff. I used to do box jumps, like nobody's business. And now I'm like, <laughs> um, so <laughs> maybe you can talk, talk me down from the ledge. I'm still working out and everything else, but talk about quantity versus quality. And also there's just so many things in the world that's like hit workouts, strength workouts, cardio only. Don't forget to do this. Don't forget to stretch. Don't forget your yoga. And by the time you're getting older, you don't have that many hours in the day. So let's talk about the aging athlete. <laughs> Absolutely. And hey, I'm not that far behind. I, I, you know, I'm about to be 31 in a few months and I, all of a sudden I'm feeling my, I'm feeling my knee. I'm like, what's going on here? (laughs) Just wait. So (laughs) I saw a meme yesterday that, sorry, I have to interrupt because it's the timing was perfect. It was like, be scared of the person that is over 40 years old and runs (laughs) because you know that their body (laughs) And like all the comments were hilarious. And I'm like, same. Anyways, go ahead. No, no, no. Working, you know, with an aging body, because, you know, our goal, and we see this on the court a lot, right? Tennis is one of those sports that you could be the ageless athlete in. And you you could be playing singles, doubles, you name it, all the way um, 
past your prime to the point that you can still enjoy the game. But how do you then supplement that? And right? walk upstairs you, you, the next day. <laughs> you, exactly. Right? Or get up from bed. So I think it comes down to, and you mentioned it, like what's the kind of relationship of quality versus quantity? I think that quality plays a bigger aspect there. You know, I mentioned also earlier, juniors, younger kids, young adults uh, going to college, they can take on a greater amount of volume over time. And so when we're looking at the quality versus quantity, your quality of training should come down to keeping some of those uh, biomarkers available, ready, and you don't lose them over time. What I mean by that, a great example is power and just maximum speed. You actually have to be training power maximum speed about five, give or take every five to seven days before you start to see a dip in that quality. Maximum strength is, I think, plus or minus five days, but it's plus or minus 25 days, plus or minus five. So you go almost a whole month without trying to lift almost anything moderate to extremely heavy, Mm -hmm. but you can still maintain that maximum strength. So flipping it back and forth between a lot of those things, mobility, I think, is a extremely important uh, quality to always maintain as we find ourselves, you know, being glued to our phones most of the time, uh, sitting down, whether it's for work or other things, sitting through traffic. Uh, if it's also then working on your isometric strength, another area I think which is really important, you're telling your body, you're sending a message from your brain to your muscle, push as hard as possible. Mm-hmm. They've seen in studies that that is a actually, it's actually a really great way to maintain your strength over, you know, the longevity of your life. So power, speed, isometric strength, mm-hmm. you know, plyometrics, I think fall into that category. You, you never want to have a scenario where you start to lose power. And that comes also from the lower body. So you don't need to go through those uh, repetitive, nonstop, EMOM, 24-inch <laughs> uh, box jumps for two minutes straight. And you're gassed out. You can't walk next day. But it's still important to practice some of those movements at a lower volume that is going to, that are going to keep your bones healthy, your tendons springy and your muscles active. That makes me feel better about myself because to be completely honest and transparent, um, before COVID, I was doing a lot of, we could call them CrossFit type workouts, lifting heavier weights and all that. And then COVID hit and um, we're working from home. I don't have access to 45 pound dumbbells and or even 30 pound dumbbells, you know, like, and so my training started shifting. And then it was like, when we came back, it was like, okay, back to the gym. It was kind of like, I don't know if I want to do that anymore. Um, And definitely have like taken that like, okay, every minute on the minute for 10 minutes, you better, you know, like get through it. Now it's just like, here's your sets, like calm down. It doesn't have to be your, yeah. So I I appreciate hearing that. That makes me feel a little bit better. (laughs) No, and I'll I'll tell you this much. um, It's for me as well. You know, I've gone into different modalities of training as well to not just, See what they're about, but also find out what are some of the best practices. And I think one thing we talked about this earlier about the mobility and flexibility of these players and everyone, honestly, playing test is really important is I actually saw the, I think, what kind of a role that Pilates 
something like that that I've never done before, go in there, try it out. Not only was I sore mm-hmm. and, you know, I can lift heavy weights and go crazy, but all of a sudden I was dealing with some uh, quadriceps tendonitis at the knee and all of a sudden that just started to disappear and taking a different route, you know, through my strength, through my own training as well. I saw that being a, an important factor because of the deep positions I was in there as well. I mean, you are only going to be the best athlete if you kind of diversify that portfolio mm-hmm. to a certain degree. Be really good and not just one singular uh, item, one singular kind of workout. I love that. And then that low impact stuff, because I mean, you're in L.A., you know, the hot girl walk is trendy. <laughs> so, I mean, a lot of us are finally realizing that, like, it doesn't have to be an hour super hard. We can chill out for a minute. <laughs> Those walking desks. I really want one. <laughs> but let's see uh, what else. So what are the most common injuries that players have come to you with and how are you combating it and working through it? You know, this is, of course, going to be different for some viewers and, you know, what their clubs or where they play, how that differs. But out here, um, at least uh, in California, a little bit, I'm seeing obviously a little bit more hard court surfaces than compared to clay court surfaces. And, you know, with hard courts, your body takes a beating uh, from your ankles, your low back, your shoulders, every step you take, especially if they pound. If you're a player who just runs and pounds and sounds like a T-Rex from Jurassic Park is coming, every step you take, you're having force being transferred and absorbed from your foot up your spine. Now, of course, how fit you are, how strong you are, and all those other things are important because that's going to tell your body how to absorb it properly. But with all the change of direction, agility, um, all the physical requirements of the sport at a higher level. The biggest areas I see and I hear when players come into me is, you know, I've got a history of ankle injury, injuries, lower back tightness, mm-hmm. shoulder to neck issues as well. Uh, not so much on the surgical side there or the low back. It's primarily, and also with the hips, it's always been with the lower extremities, the knees, the ankle foot complex. And how do I go about it? It's kind of rooting them backwards, meaning, you know, I'm not trying to do the explosive, big ticket item, flashy Instagram things that you (laughs) see your favorite player do because they have had to work to get to a point that they can perform that not only safely and efficiently, but explosively. So when it comes down to the foot and the ankle, it's all about proprioception. It's about how well can you connect your brain and your body to the ground through that foot. So balance training is a huge component. I can change that up in a myriad of ways to challenge even the most uh, athletic of players. And then from the knee where that isn't as, uh, I'd say, mobile as much as it needs to be stable, that is kind of a bridging point because from the ankle and the hip, those are very mobile joints and they need to have that mobility, but they also need to have that control. So anything I see coming from the knee is going to be looked at from either location. With the low back, it is in most cases a deficiency in their core strength, motor control, 
or the combination of the two. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's this theory out there uh, called energy flow. It's basically saying, hey, your body works all together as a system. If there is a leak anywhere, it's going to show up in, let's say, especially with rotational athletes where it's primarily designed with, it's going to be happening at the shoulder. It's going to be happening at the low back. And whether you're a tennis uh, athlete or a baseball athlete or you know, any, or a quarterback or football, you know, you're doing anything that rotates and you're using your arm and your shoulder, it's going to translate up there as well. But the first spot is going to be that low back. So, you know, gaining the understanding of, Hey, we got to connect our body. And at the same time, when we're doing tennis specific movements, such as, you know, medicine ball throws, or one piece of equipment I love to use that I've, you know, put up on my social media a few times, one of those like 3D straps is just understanding how to move through your hip to move the rest of your body, Mm -hmm. that your powerhouse is centered around your midsection, your hips. And then lastly, with the shoulder and the kind of upper back, I get that periodically from just a mobility aspect and understanding, hey, our upper bodies are usually, quote unquote, the expression called jacked, meaning tensed up. You know, if you're a player, you're not using your hips, you're not using your legs. Well, you're definitely just using your arm. So the mobility there between what's called your internal rotation or kind of twisting in or your external rotation twisting out is important. And if you're playing, uh, let's say even with a two-hand backhand, regardless, that forehand, whichever side, righty or lefty that you're playing with, that side is probably going to see a deficiency in internal rotation. So we need to always address different positions that you can breathe in to relax, to stretch out in. But on top of that, also understand how to train the muscles responsible against it. So that means if I'm hitting my forehand, you know, I'm just going across my chest. Mm-hmm. I need to be working a lot of those smaller intrinsic muscles of the back and the shoulder as well to help me slow down the movement as well. And, you know, when they go through a stretch that those smaller muscles know to how to control your body. So this is, or this can be considered a lot of corrective exercises really for that area. Nice. Wow. That was very informative. <laughs> you just got us all dialed in with our low back, our shoulder, our hips, ankles. Um, with that, how about the importance of warming up and cooling down properly? Oh, it is paramount, I think, in terms of the day-to-day uh, recreational player. If you're a weekend warrior and you're playing on Saturday and on Sunday, uh, maybe Sunday probably for a few more hours, <laughs> then you're going to need to understand how to warm up properly and cool down. And if you're at the junior level, it's the same concept. You're playing weekend tournaments or practices. So when you're warming up, I think, and this is my own uh, you know, methodology, is that everybody whether you're excited, you're doing something else earlier in the day, you're coming from school, coming from work, your body is in this sympathetic or really uptight type of position, right? Okay, I'm going to play tennis. Okay, no. We got to slow things down, go parasympathetic for just a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, bring your body down. Once we've done that and we've mobilized a little bit, it's kind of part of a protocol called RAMP. What we're doing is we're raising your heart rate. We're activating muscle groups mobilizing certain joint locations and then putting it all together and potentiating it so that you're ready to hit, you're ready to work out. So that warmth doesn't have to go for a half an hour. 
But I, it also doesn't mean you should just run on a treadmill or run a few laps around the court. And I think I see you shaking your head. You're like, oh, I had to do that. And I hated it. It is redundant. And what's funny was that I was actually at an event this past weekend and I met uh, Johnny Parks, who's oh, uh, part so of the USDA. I was going to ask you this earlier. Johnny played at the same college that I played at. And also when I coached there, he was a player. And I literally just saw his Instagram yesterday and was watching some of his mobility stuff on the court. And I was like, yes. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. That's so ironic. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but it's, you know, when, you know, we talked and we bonded because I, you know, he didn't know who I was sitting, you know, before we talked and we met up afterwards is that he said, I am tired of seeing people running around courts thinking that that's a warm-up. And everyone and said, does like, it. <laughs> everyone does it, but he also said, I hated doing that. And, we, and I know you asked me that question. What do you do with uh, that person who really doesn't like to do their fitness or their training on the physical side? Don't make them run laps. <laughs> so that's the fastest way to like not have someone buy in. So I, you know, Getting to a point where it becomes then specific for a little bit, your warm-up could just be seven to eight minutes broken down into certain criteria and kind of like check boxes that you're marking off. Hey, I'm warmed up. My heart rate's up. I feel mobile. Uh, I feel like I've done some stuff into the tennis movements I need to go through side to side or rotational, what have you. And I'm primed. I'm ready to go. Now, your cool down should be kind of like that beginning part of that warm-up. You're trying to take yourself from the top of that roller coaster all the way down, but then slow yourself down. So my kind of methodology, my practice with a lot of players as well, and I've sent these cooldowns to them as well, is to, hey, enter some static positions, whether you're standing, whether you're half kneeling, and in most cases, actually lying down on your back or on all fours, hands and knees, just focusing on your breathing, get into those positions. Not to get into too much depth, but our ribs and our hips, our pelvis, contribute to a ton of motion for the rest of our body. Mm -hmm. So if we can do some parasympathetic breathing, getting our anxiety, our stress, our excitement to the point where we can breathe normally and cool ourselves down. Again, this is kind of like that mentality route as well you're able to actually influence the rest of your body through your breathing and more or less also your body's ability to recover after the fact. Nice. Good answers. Um, I saw this question and I absolutely loved it. So I was hoping you could help because we're running out of time, even though I feel like I could talk to you for hours, but I know you've got a busy day of training. Um, someone was saying how they are playing competitive. They're three, five, but they want to get better at tennis and they're having success. So they're going to be playing a lot more tennis, but they also want to get stronger and they want to be able to manage time on the court first time on the gym and what does that look like? And let's say, you know, like we're talking about an adult who also has a full-time job. So all of this is just the extracurricular. And what would you suggest between him practicing, you know, his tennis, but then also getting better at tennis and getting stronger in the gym? I would say try to perform the minimum effective dose. I think a lot of people, when they come to the gym, and, you know, if they don't have a an aide or a trainer to work with them, knowing what kind of program they should be doing, people overshoot, they overthink, they overdo. We worry why we're sore the next day, 
and A becomes in too much and the expression is you pour too much stressors into that blender, that top is going to explode. And so how do you do it properly? Get the minimum effective dose. So if you're crammed for time with all those things as well that you mentioned, I would say, don't worry about how much time you're spending in the gym. Try to hit the very basics, just one, two movements on for your speed or your power from the upper body with a medicine ball, for example. Try to hit one thing. I think one thing, one movement I love doing with a lot of my athletes, regardless of your skill level or age or strength levels, is a trap bar deadlift. And that can be created, you could put it into different variations where it's less stress and load on the spine, maybe more challenging for athleticism and do some smaller jumps, do some stuff for your core. I would say, don't try to hammer out bench presses and go three, four sets, go crazy. Like your bodybuilder, understand the blender analogy that I just provided and try to get the minimum effective dose. So the top of that lid can stay on. But I would also just say, you know, if there's a day that you just don't feel it, don't worry about it. You know, I would say cut that workout short. Maybe just start walking on that incline treadmill at a very high pace. You know, get intervals there for just about five to 10 minutes. Do some other smaller mobility things. And 30 minutes probably have like blasted by you in a small time frame. But you accomplished the things you needed to keep a lot of those qualities around for yourself, but also so you stay fresh for those tournaments. Nice. And kind of the same question, but a little bit different. What's the best or what do you, I hate the best, but what do you like as a supplement uh, for cross training for tennis? What do you see as like, I play tennis three or four times a week, but I also go to the gym three times a week. What should I be doing? What I mentioned just a second ago, you know, the minimum effective dose, Mm -hmm. especially on the cross training element, you can be really creative during those periods. So that doesn't mean, like, as, as I said, being on a treadmill, mm-hmm. you could put in some really hard conditioning for your heart rate, your consistent power, repeated power as well through repeated sprints, uh, through a medicine ball kind of medley where you're doing scoops, you're doing slams, you're doing then sit-ups with it, you're, you're tossing it up into the air, and it's a nonstop kind of interval pace. I've had players who have been gassed mm-hmm. from doing that, and it was a creative form of hit training for them because it wasn't breaking them down. We were using four to eight pounds maximum. It doesn't have to be that 20-pound med ball you're lugging over your shoulder. And you can still break it down where, hey, I want to have one day where I'm focusing on just that, maybe just speed or acceleration development. So inclines, uh, sprints, uh, going to a park where you can find a little hill as well, short, maybe 10, 15 yards to run up and down, you know, 30 seconds to a minute break, walking down, repeating that as well. Then on other days, you're focusing on more of that cross training element. You may be using a suspension trainer, TRX stuff, uh, sliders, kettlebells, you name it, to get that kind of multi-joint angle as well as movement in. And the other day, I would just say, hey, you got to just keep one bit of strength, regardless if you're doing anything with it. But if you're doing that strength, let's say, here's a great example. I might have a goblet squat position with a dumbbell right in front of my body, safe, but really, hey, they're core demand. And I might do about six to eight squats. And then I've got to go ahead and jump rope for a minute straight. 
And we know, like I mentioned earlier, hey, how important your footwork is. Some of the best players are the best movers, trying to quote Roger there. But, <laughs> you know, it's it's also working on your ankles. Something I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. that you got to be strong in. So why not combine the two a little bit? The only thing I'll, I'll tell your listeners and everyone else uh, watching or listening is that just be careful not to do too much all at once or pack it in. Now, if you have time, of course, let's say you're playing and you're going to strength train later. I would try to see how well we can separate the two. Sometimes it needs to be back to back, but just be careful that there is an interference effect that can happen. So I would just, you know, try to moderate it a little bit. If you're crammed for time, that's probably the best option to do it. Nice. Well, you've provided us with a wealth of information. There's been so many questions from people, especially like post COVID, like how do I get a strength conditioning program? And I'm sure you would be a great resource. So tell the listeners where they can find more about you, where they can learn about your programs. Talk to me about where you're located in case they're able to meet you in person, plug yourself. (laughs) Sure. So uh, one, you can definitely check out my website, uh, jameslshapiro.com. There are a few resources there also on the blog aspect, uh, an element where I break down some things from the tennis side of strength conditioning and not just your overall health, wellness, and fitness. Uh, from the Instagram side of things, it's james.l.shapiro. It's nearly the same thing, which is two dots in the middle there. Or you could probably also reach me through Twitter. That's also somewhat similar as well, James L. Shapiro. Uh, if you're in the Southern California region, I do work with a bunch of people from Ventura and LA. And um, it's not a worry to me if you require a little bit of a drive. I have some spots I know of working outside. And also I work virtually. So if you're not in the area, but still want to work with me, I work with a few players through online programming um, and also virtually through FaceTime and everything else like all those other platforms. We love that about COVID. Everyone can now virtually connect, which is so cool. <laughs> that's the best. <laughs> if one good thing came out of it, that's that. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. James, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate you taking the time answering my questions as well as many others that we always get. And I will plug all your links in the episode notes and ask people if you guys have further questions or want to go into more detail, feel free to ask them and we'll reach out. Maybe even could do a part two or be more specific in another episode. So thanks for joining us. Everyone stay healthy and go to the gym, be strong, but also listen to your body and... (laughs) Any last words? <laughs> um, no, you hit it right on the spot. Listen to your body and everyone out there. Hey, listen, remember, age is just a number. You can still be an athlete for life. Yes, I love that. Amen. Happy hitting. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you download your episodes. And be sure to visit our websites for all of the tennis deals at tenniswarehouse.com, tenniswarehouseeurope.com, and tennisonly.com.au. Hope you enjoyed this episode and until next time, happy hitting.